All right, so today we are going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verses 20 through 28. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. You can find our passage on page 961 in the Pew Bible. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, we have been doing this deep dive into the resurrection since Easter. And so we've been looking into 1 Corinthians 15, this, uh, essentially what uh, one scholar called the, the, the fifth uh, testimony of the resurrection. And we have covered objections to the resurrection. We've talked about how the resurrection is an inseparable part of the gospel. We've talked about the terrible realities that we would have to accept if resurrection, even generally, and the resurrection of Christ specifically, was not true. And here Paul begins in verse 20 by reaffirming the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not the possibility, but the fact But we need to ask ourselves, what is the significance of the resurrection beyond how it affects Jesus and raising him from the dead? Why is the resurrection inseparable from the gospel itself? We we recognize that it is inseparable in the way that Paul presents it to us earlier on in 1 Corinthians 15. But we have not explored why it is inseparable. And, and while we believe that every part of Jesus' life is, uh, um, is consequential for us, that he lived upon the earth for those 33 years, why is it that the resurrection of Jesus takes such a special character? And we ask these questions because, unfortunately, unfortunately due to a lot of preaching, many in the church have a very shallow understanding of the resurrection. We're a culture that's used to sound bites. You know, there was um, Neil Postman who wrote the famous book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is always shocking because he wrote it in 1985. All right, talking about TV before, before internet was in the home with all the, you know, t- that terrible sound that it would make. 
before Oregon Trail was on the computer with two big floppy disks that I would put in as a kid and, um, and kill everybody from dysentery. So, um, uh, but many, uh, but we, we live in this, uh, but we live in this age where we just, we, we have trouble holding attention and, and, and the news agencies, they put out these bits and they just kind of little, just little, you know, flashy headlines, little things, and don't let it go too long. And the guy who wrote um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he was explaining the problem of, of this even in, the, even in the mid to late 80s. And he was on a news program and he's saying, well, he, you know, and he's explaining to the anchor saying, look, the, the problem is such that we need to have a lengthy conversation about this, but in, um, in 60 seconds, we're going to have to cut to a commercial. And the news anchor said, it's more like 10. <laughs> so, because uh, we need to we need to sell some soap, right? So, like that that's that's how important this news broadcast is. We need to interrupt it to sell you home goods. And and there's a similar issue in the church that we we, we know oh, the resurrection's true. It's important, but we can't necessarily explain why. And so Jesus, so so resurrection then for many in the church is simply an important fact about Jesus in the past. But Paul is clear here that the resurrection matters for us not just as it's something that important that happened in the past, but that the resurrection of Christ has implications for us now and in the future. That the resurrection of Jesus actually determines the future of our lives forever. Even more, the resurrection of Jesus will in time change not just the world, but the universe itself. So we're going to look first today at how Christ's resurrection impacts our future and then how his resurrection will reveal the supremacy of God in all things. So first, verses 20 to 23, we'll see how the resurrection of Christ is our future. And Paul begins by saying in verse 20 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, now, Paul here pulls in an a agricultural metaphor from the Old Testament. According to Jewish law, you would offer the first portion of your crop to the Lord as an offering of thanks. And that offering of thanks often wouldn't be burned. It would actually was uh, given to the Levites as their portion. But it functioned as a sign of God's blessing and assurance of the full harvest that was to come in. And so to say that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits is interesting uh, because uh, the one presenting the initial portion is not the people of God, but then it is God himself presenting Jesus as the first fruits of the harvest of resurrection to come. God the Father has raised Jesus from the dead and presents him to us, to his people, and ultimately we'd say to even to himself, as the guarantee of the full harvest that is to come in. And this applies to those who have fallen asleep in death, as Paul says. Now before, Paul said, if resurrection isn't true, then those who have died have truly perished. But since the resurrection of Christ is a fact, this will result certainly in the resurrection of his people. And even because of that, we can describe their present bodily status in death as merely sleep. Now, uh, saying that they are sleeping is not to say, as some have contended, that they have entered into some sort of soul sleep, as some, uh, some uh, heresies have argued or um, 
but it is, it is uh, because we know from other passages that when we die, we immediately enter into the presence of the Lord. But, it, but in terms of how we regard the bodies of believers, even believers who were persecuted and martyred and burned to ash, how we regard the bodies of believers is merely that they are sleeping until the resurrection. Paul says something similar in Philippians 3.21 when he talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is, Jesus will make us like himself in terms of his glorious resurrected body. But why is this the case? Well, this is the case because, as we like to say, Jesus is the head of the church in verses 21 to 22. Now, Paul describes this in terms of headship, in terms of this argument of comparing Adam to Christ. First, he says, he gives a principle. He says, since by a man death came into the world, so also by a man resurrection from the dead comes in also. And then he gets specific. In Adam, all die. But likewise, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, we know Paul is not preaching here a universal salvation because he clarifies what he means by all in verse 23. What it, 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 and so that means it's the similarity between Adam and Christ here is not one of the number being saved, but the similarity between Adam and Christ is one of function, that they have people who are connected to them. So the life of Adam affected all those joined to him. Well, who is that? Well, that would be all of humanity, because all of humanity is descended from Adam. But likewise, the life of Jesus Christ affects all those who are joined to him. And who is that? That would be the true church. All those who are joined to Jesus Christ by faith in the power of the Spirit. And the fancy phrase we like to use this is called federal headship. That Adam and Jesus are federal heads over their respective groups. Uh, and basically that, uh, that whatever happens with Adam affects all those that he is over. And whatever happens with Jesus affects all those uh, over whom he rules and reigns and is connected to. And, and so Adam represents fallen humanity and Christ represents the church. And so all those who are joined to Christ will be as Christ is. As Christ is resurrected, so his people will be resurrected. But Paul wants to be very clear here uh, that uh, in, in about this resurrection. So he, in verse 23, establishes the order of resurrection. And so Paul has explained the metaphor, and he gets into more explanation here, that Jesus gets resurrected as the first fruits, and then his people come as the harvest. And Paul clarifies uh, two things here. Um, he clarifies when the resurrection of the people of God will occur, and he clarifies who gets resurrected. So when? When Christ returns. But who will get resurrected? Well, Paul doesn't say it. Uh, um, uh, well, he says, he says those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. 
But he doesn't explain in this particular passage, how do you belong to Christ? Because he said that elsewhere. But those who belong to Christ are simply those who have, who have been given by the Father to Jesus before the foundation of the world, who in their lifetime have also given themselves, confessed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. They are those who belong to Christ, who trust in Jesus to save them from their sins, to save them even from the grave. And so this means that we aren't trusting in Jesus ultimately to enter into an eternal disembodied state. We're just kind of floating around. We trust in Jesus and we trust him to ultimately bring us into the experience of resurrection. And and what this means is that the resurrection of Christ has ushered in the beginning of a new age even the beginning of the kingdom of God. Because we live in what we call the already but not yet. Our Savior, our head, our brother, the husband of the church, has been resurrected already. And we await his return. And the resurrection that he will bring to his own when he comes. As he is, so shall we be as the harvest of God. But do not miss that Jesus Christ himself is the personal divine guarantee of all this. He in his resurrected body, I mean think about the, this. Jesus is the only one with a resurrected body in heaven. Everyone else is a disembodied spirit. No one has a resurrected body in heaven except Jesus. But that is only temporary. Because he is, in that resurrected body, the demonstration of God's power and the assurance that we will inherit the kingdom by faith in the name of Jesus, and that will come with resurrected, glorious bodies. The resurrection is our future. We know it because Christ is raised from the dead. And because he is, we have victory over the grave now in Jesus. We have citizenship in the kingdom of God now in Jesus. And in time, we will experience the fullness of these things when Christ returns and we are raised in glory as he is. And then Paul takes the resurrection and he brings it and he kind of widens the scope out to show us how the resurrection of Christ will ultimately reveal the supremacy of God in all things. Verses 24 to 28. And we've already talked about it a little bit, but Paul explains here that resurrection brings the kingdom of God. It brings the kingdom of God in its fullness. We like to say the consummation of the kingdom. When Christ returns and he resurrects his people, uh, Paul says that's when the end comes. And the end does include other elements, which Paul doesn't mention here, like the final judgment. He doesn't mention that here. Um, but, uh, but that is because judgment is not, awaits, is not what awaits the people of God. What awaits the people of God is resurrection glory in the kingdom. 
So at, that, at this time, he says, Christ, the Son of God, will hand over the full harvest, the very kingdom of God, to God the Father. So what is required then to deliver over the kingdom of God from the Son to the Father? What must be accomplished in order for this to take place? Because it's got to be done, right? It's got to be fully and truly ready uh, and, and before you hand it over to the Father. Well, first, the number of the elect must be made full. Those who belong to God will have all been born and believed the gospel and been sealed in the Spirit. Secondly, the Spirit who administers the benefits of the gospel to the people of God will have completed His work. That work of sanctification that we are well aware is still in progress in our lives will be done. Now, at the time of our death, even prior to the kingdom coming, the presence of sin is removed from us, even as we are removed from our bodies and brought into the presence of God. But we are still not fully complete. That sanctification is not fully done until it truly is embraced in resurrection and glory. Third, the Son will, by the Spirit, have raised us bodily unto new life in glory. And this is not all the details of the kingdom of God. For more information, go read the end of the book of Revelation. All right. But for the people of God, the kingdom of God being handed over from the Son to the Father means that the, it means that the fullness of resurrection life is in our possession to be enjoyed forever. In this sense... The end becomes the beginning. This also means that resurrection reveals the destruction of the enemy in verses 25 to 26. Now, verse 24, Paul says that Christ will hand over the kingdom only after he has destroyed every rule, every authority, and every power. That would be the corrupted, uh, fallen order of this world from wicked men to the devil himself. Every evil and corrupt rule, power, and authority will be brought to a just end. Paul then brings in uh, verses like Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 8, 6 to show how the present reign of Christ will come to be fulfilled in the destruction of his enemies as foretold in the Psalms. His reign will continue, Paul says, quoting from these Psalms. It must continue until all his enemies have been fully and finally subjugated. And the reign of Christ is is related here to his resurrection. Because not only did Jesus take possession of his throne upon his ascension into heaven. In his resurrection, he defeated for himself and for his people the final enemy the last enemy to be defeated, which is death. Death is the final enemy to be destroyed, but it will be destroyed. And we know this because Jesus has already beaten it. All things are under his feet, 
even though there is a not yet aspect to it. Because while Christ has reigns victorious over death, we yet still experience it. But there is a time coming when death will not be one of the certainties in life. Further, I mean, just imagine that, right? We joke about, you know, we'll make jokes about what uh, JFK said, you know, the only two certainties are death and taxes, right? We could add on being angry about politics and stuff like that, but we could add on these little jokes about it. But there's a time coming when those things will, well, taxes won't be true either, yay. But, uh, but, when, but when that will not be a common shared experience, when there will be no need for hospitals or funeral homes. There will be a new order of things, and all because of the resurrection of Christ. As one scholar wrote, about the end of death. He said, the defeat and abolition of death must mean new life, new bodily life, new resurrection life. And finally, Paul shows us in verses 27 to 28 that resurrection reveals God as all in all. Paul wants us to be sure that we don't misunderstand him when he talks about subjugating all things under Christ, under the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Because when he says, when he says that all things are placed under the feet of Jesus, it doesn't mean that God the Father who placed them there is under his rule, that he is subjected to them. In fact, when the time comes, Paul says, when the end comes, when death is abolished and we experience resurrection life, then the Son will even submit himself to the Father along with the kingdom. Now, some are put off by this uh, because, um, you know, they believe that God uh, rightly exists as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, and, and each person worthy of worship. So how then can one member of the Trinity submit to another member of the, member of the Trinity in this way? Well, in Christian theology, submission is not an issue of value or essence. And we know this is true even in marriage. If a wife submits to her husband, it's not because she has less value as a person, that she is less capable, that she is, that she is, uh, that she is less intelligent or less able. I mean, that's just not what it means. And we know this because the Son submits himself to the Father, not because he is less than the Father, not because there is something in his essence that makes him be submissive to the Father. Uh, uh, The Spirit is submissive both to the Father and to the Son, carrying out the wills of both. And and, And not because there is something lesser about the Spirit. In the relationship is what we call um, a economic submission, a relational submission is what we call it. Because in the relationship, it is the Father who wills all that there is. It is the Son who gladly carries forth the will of His Father. And the Spirit who proceeds from both accomplishes the will of the Father and the ministry of the Son. But I want to make sure we don't lose the thread, because it's really easy to lose the thread when you start getting a Trinity talk. So... But here's the purpose of all of it, Paul says. The resurrection of Jesus, 
your future resurrection and mine. The end of the present evil age, the fullness of the kingdom of God, the purpose is singular. That God may be all in all. At the end of the day, it's all about God. And that's a good thing. Well, what does that mean for God to be all in all? Well, Augustine in the fourth century put it beautifully. He said, for God to be all in all means that God will be the consummation of all our desiring. He will be the object of our unending vision. The object of our unlessening or undiminishing love. The object of our unwearying praise. And in this gift of glorious vision, the response of love, this paean of praise, all alike will share, just as all will share in everlasting life. To share in the glorious resurrection and exaltation of God in the kingdom of God and resurrection life is to know eternal life and joy as the people of God. There is truly no human way to convey that which has not yet happened in a way that we would really be able to grasp. We're talking about things that our beloved family members and loved ones and brothers and sisters in the faith who are with the Lord now don't know. They know better than we do, but they have not experienced because they have not been resurrected. There is only one who has experienced resurrection glory, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he is our guarantee, not only of resurrection, but of every part of us. All the promises of God, Paul says, are yes in Jesus Christ. And that means when we look at ourselves, with all, with, with all the distraction of, of worldliness, how lost we get in our own selfishness, where we get so burdened foolishly with temporary matters, and even just the weight of knowing those things, the longing that we have for the lack of holiness, the want of holiness that we see and righteousness that we have in our lives, all of that will be purified and satisfied and glorified in the resurrection. And it is secured for us, promised to us, assured for us, certain for us, because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And so if we are to deepen our understanding of Christ's resurrection today, then we need to see that the resurrection is more than something important that happened to Jesus in the past. It happened. But the resurrection of Jesus has massive ramifications of the, most, of the utmost importance for his people and for the world. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and the guarantee of our resurrection. It is the guarantee that death one day itself will die. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and guarantee that the kingdom of God, no matter how doubtful we may be, no matter how much it seem, may seem to hang by a thread from our present view, it is the guarantee, the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that one day all that is wrong will be removed. All that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with us will be removed. And that God will be everything to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that you have revealed the glory and truth of the resurrection. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in the fact of Christ's resurrection because we love him. And because the very thought of him buried in the grave after being crucified and brutalized breaks our hearts. And just brings joy to us to know that our Savior is alive because we love him. That he's ascended on high, ruling over us. And that brings a a joy to us, a security to us. But even more, Lord, may we rejoice because his resurrection and his ascension is the sign of our resurrection and our ascension in glory. Even Paul says that even now in our union with Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So, Lord, we come to you with so many griefs and doubts and fears and failings and sorrows that we cannot even give voice to. We pray that the resurrection of Jesus would speak to us there in the darkest corners of our hearts, in our deepest fears, our greatest anxieties, our most shameful failures, to know that there is grace And hope that reaches even into the grave. That one day, not only will we be with you in glory, but that you will raise our bodies from the dead. And we will gloriously live with you in your kingdom. Oh, Father, may that bring us joy today. May it bring us renewed hope and peace May give us strength to carry forward the race, especially in the midst of hardship and burdens. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.